coming up on today's show has a rift developed between NATO, Russia, Ukraine. Not a lot of certainty as to exactly what happened and what might come next. We'll also go through the latest inflation numbers, holding steady. So what does that mean? We'll find out. We'll also talk about an Auditor General's report into Canada's defense capabilities in the Arctic. A lot of things to be concerned about. So, I guess overall, things uh, in Ukraine slash Poland slash Russia uh, ended up, well, they haven't ended, that's part of the issue. But the developments that took place over the past 48 hours or so, uh, it doesn't seem like we're headed to a further escalation. But there is also um, more developments following, as you know, there was a missile that landed in Poland, uh, struck some farmland in Poland, killing Two people and the investigation immediately was, was launched to try and figure out where the missile came from, why it ended up in Poland, which is a member of NATO. So there'd be all kinds of implications if this was a deliberate attack on uh, a NATO member. That would mean all kinds of responses from the other NATO countries. But the determination by Poland and by NATO itself was the missile came from Ukraine as part of their air defense system. The cruise missiles from Russia were heading into Ukraine. Ukraine was firing missiles to take them down. That's what this was. It missed. It landed in Poland, and unfortunately, two people were killed. However, NATO said um, it was not a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian missile. did not require any further escalation. But there's not total agreement on that as... Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says, no, 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 that was not our missile. So where are we and where might we go from here? We're going to chat now with uh, Oral Brown, who is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Toronto and an associate at the Davis Center at Harvard University. Uh, Oral, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good morning. So I guess the most important piece of all of this, over, overarching everything else, is we're not expecting an escalation of the conflict. That was the big concern uh, prior to the announcement from NATO yesterday, that this might cause an escalation. It looks like that's not going to happen, right? One can almost hear the sigh of relief in Washington yeah. that uh, President Biden, having, having made these statements that he would defend every inch of NATO territory, is very relieved that he doesn't have to do that, that he does not have to directly confront Russia. And it was quite remarkable how quickly the administration in Washington came out to say that it was highly unlikely that this missile came from Russia directly, even before any investigation was conducted. And as you said, there are different views as to what happened. But at the end of the day, even if this was a missile that was fired against Russian uh, incoming uh, uh, missiles and munitions by Ukrainians, and that is what landed in uh, Poland, Russia is responsible because Russia has engaged in a war of aggression. It has been hitting infrastructure, civilian areas in Ukraine uh, relentlessly. It has been committing war crimes. It has acted uh, recklessly. And if Ukraine misfired in this kind of instance in trying to defend itself, Russia is still responsible. This right. is what the Secretary General of uh, NATO said. So we have to see if there will be some type of more subtle escalation. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. You know, ultimately, it is NATO, uh, Russia that is responsible for this because they started the conflict. Now, Zelensky and his stance on this, continuing right up until last I heard at least, was saying, no, 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 this was not a Ukrainian missile. This was a Russian missile that did this. Um, 
against all evidence. What's what what do you think his reasoning is for for taking this stance? I mean, does he firmly believe it? What's what's going on there? He would like to get, obviously, as much help from the West as possible. And if this was a direct Russian act, that would change the situation. He'd be very frustrated that the West has helped, but not as much as it could or it should in his eyes and the eyes of many analysts that has been a kind of reactive type of help on the part of the West with just-in-time uh, uh, kind of munitions and, and weapons. And Ukrainians have been dying uh, in large numbers because they have not received the anti-aircraft missile. They should have done months ago. They did not get uh, the long-range artillery uh, that uh, has helped them recapture territory. So there's a tremendous amount of frustration uh, that is bubbling underneath the surface with Zelensky. But when we say that what he is claiming, Zelensky claiming, is against all evidence, we actually do not know for sure what the evidence is sure. because there is an ongoing investigation. And the latest uh, word from Kiev is that Ukrainian investigators will be allowed to join American and Polish investigators to find out exactly what has happened and uh, what the type of missile it was. More than likely, it seems that it was a Russian-made missile, but it may have been something that was possessed, that it was purchased by Ukraine way back or inherited from the Soviet days, uh, let's say uh, an S-300 anti-aircraft missile that was fired in defense uh, against Russian attacks, and it just uh, went off course and landed in uh, uh, Poland. These things happen. Sometimes yeah. people are killed by friendly fire. But the problem is that Ukraine would not be firing these missiles where it's not for a Russian attack. So where do we go from here? I mean, I think it became pretty clear through this that, uh, and, and I think we knew it before, NATO and the United States are absolutely um, dead set against escalation. That's the last thing they want to see happen. Um, does that change what's happened in the past 48 hours? Does that change the way this conflict plays out if you're Russia or if you're Ukraine? Well, it should change things. Uh, because when we deconstruct this, we uh, don't just have this option. Will NATO go to war with Russia? Because that is obviously undesirable. Russia has a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. We do not want to get in a nuclear war. A direct conflict between Russia and NATO could escalate into nuclear conflict. And it makes sense to try to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things that can be done short of that. And... If we look at what not only Secretary General of NATO, Stoltenberg, said that Russia bears responsibility, but when we look at the subtle differences within the United States, and I don't know uh, how many people saw that conference, where uh, the Secretary of Defense of the United States, Lloyd Austin, appeared together with a Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley. The differences were quite evident. Milley... Uh, wouldn't mind pushing Ukraine, it seems, into negotiations, which may very well be premature. Uh, Lloyd Austin, a former general who is the Secretary of Defense, is much more optimistic about Ukrainian capabilities to fight the war, even in winter, to take back more territory. After all, Ukraine has freed more than half of the territory that Russia controlled in the initial phases of the war. So it showed it has the capacity 
to roll the Russians back. And this is where if you accept the fact that regardless of whether Russia fired this missile directly, this was something that happened because of Russian aggression, Mm -hmm. ultimately, then Ukraine could be given much more in terms of anti-aircraft capacity. It could be given more in terms of a capacity to conduct operations to recapture territory. That would mean more tanks. That would mean possibly even MiG-29 aircraft that are in Poland that could be transferred that uh, Ukraine has been asking for. So there are several options that the West has. But so far, the Biden administration has been extremely timid. And in the case of the Germans, basically what uh, Olaf Scholz has said is that he does not want to be the first one to provide tanks or offensive weapons to Ukraine. So if United States takes the lead, Germany is willing to also lead from behind. And so more could be done. And this is what we have to see. What would be the response? Because you can't have it both ways to say, look, Russia is responsible either way, but we are not going to do anything because we are so intimidated about escalation that we will allow Russia to continue to hit Ukrainian civilian infrastructure close to the Polish border. The reason if this turns out to be to have been a Ukrainian missile that landed in Poland, the reason for that would be the Russians were hitting targets so close. Inside Ukraine, very close to the Polish border, which is utterly reckless, as well as a war crime. Exactly. Yeah. Which is the whole point. I mean, and, the, and as, you, as you mentioned, it, that's what it comes back to. None of this would be happening were it not for the invasion. That's, that's the bottom line here. Um, Oral, thank you so much for your time. As always, I appreciate you being here today. I don't think in all the years I've been involved in the media and reporting and anchoring and all the rest of that, we've ever paid as much attention to inflation as we are lately. And for good reason. I, you know, in my career, we haven't seen inflation at rates like we've been uh, dealing with over the last several months. So we got the new numbers out yesterday and the big headline number, right? The overall rate of inflation year over year held steady at 6.9% in October. So the same as it was in September. So what does that mean? And then you start to pull that number apart and there's so many other numbers within it and uh, how will it affect interest rates, all the rest. You know, we've been dealing with it for, well, like I say, several months now. So let's get into a bit and get some expert help here. Doug Porter is the chief economist at BMO Capital Markets and he joins us now. Doug, thanks for your time. I appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good morning. So, so, like I say, that big headline story, right? The, the, it, it's staying the same, 6.9%, same rate as the month before. Good news, bad news, expected, unexpected? What do you take away from that main number? So, overall, I thought it was slightly good news, you know, and, and, and we've got to take this step by step. There's no question about an inflation rate that's still close to 7% is, yeah. is way too high for, for anybody's comfort. But as a standalone number, I was actually mildly encouraged because in that month, gasoline prices across the country went up by 9% or a little bit more than 9% from the prior month. That's a big move. And when you take gasoline out of it, like you look beyond that, prices actually saw a pretty modest increase elsewhere. Uh, in in the month, so we we were actually bracing for a number uh, quite a bit above seven percent, like seven point two, seven point three percent. So 
we f- we found this a number to be mildly encouraging. At least at least it looks like you know non gasoline prices are starting to move in the right direction. And and that's the thing. Once you start to dig into those numbers, is in other months we've heard this is all being driven by this or that. In this case, it's gas prices once again, right, coming up quite a bit through the month of October. Yeah, that's right. There, there were a couple other factors. I mean, it wasn't by no means was it only gasoline right. prices. Uh, for instance, property taxes. The the one month of the, of the year where StatsCanda surveys every city in the country and figures out how much uh, uh, property taxes went up in the year that gets recorded in the October. Oh, okay. Next, last year, last year property taxes went up by one and a half percent. This year, they went up by a, a little bit more than three and a half percent. A pretty big step up. Not not nearly as high as overall inflation, but that uh, that also played a little bit of a role in uh, in, in keeping the inflation rate uh, at, at at almost seven percent in the latest month. Interesting. Okay, gas prices, of course, uh, one that affects everybody, um, and so do food prices. And there were some. You know, uh, very marginal good news there, I guess. I mean, down to 10.1% in October from 103 in September, but still, that's astronomically high, isn't it? Oh, yeah. To me, this is the real problem area. And, um, when, when they talk about food prices, they're including restaurant meals in there as well. So, you know, fast food and that, that sort of thing. If you look at grocery, Prices alone, they're they're actually up by 11 percent in the past year. That's actually slightly better than it was in uh, in, in the prior month. Uh, they were up 11.4 the month before. There there actually are some prices that are starting to moderate a little bit. Believe it or not, meat prices are are actually climbing down the mountain a little bit. Um, I mean, they're not rising nearly as quickly as they used to. But unfortunately, you know, and I think m- most all of it, most everyone's heard about the uh, the run up in lettuce prices, yeah. uh, pasta prices. You know, anything related to grain, uh, and this is a global story uh we we've seen a lot of you know strength in, in bakery products and cereals and and that sort of thing in pasta uh that 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 obviously is is related to uh to, to the war in ukraine uh that and as well the drought in the u.s last year that's uh that carried on a little bit in, into this year we, we had a great harvest here in canada in the prairies this year but um globally it's still a tough situation in uh in in the grain market um, in terms of wages, that's the other piece that sometimes fits into this puzzle. We're seeing that they've gone up about 5.6%, which is behind the rate of inflation, but they're going up. I mean, how does that relationship typically work, and what does it tell us about where we might be in terms of the inflationary cycle? Well, you know, it's interesting. This, uh, and, and by the way, I, I, I was listening to your comments at, at, at the start. I, I actually began working back in 1982 at, at the Bank of Canada, so I actually do remember. Oh, okay, you were around for it then. And, <laughs> and and I was uh, I was going to school in the, in the 70s, and then you know lived through that experience. Um, this is actually not that different from what we saw in the early stages of the 70s. In other words, you know that that was led by a big run up in. in Food and energy prices, and then slowly but surely, and and it's perfectly understandable. Of course, workers want to keep up with that, and so wages then follow about six to twelve months months later. And you know we are starting to slowly but surely see, you know, a lot of uh, labor market tension and conflict, and uh, and and wages are starting to catch up. Um, and you know, it's for obvious natural reasons that uh, that workers don't want to be left behind by uh, by inflation. Sure. So I, I think we're going to continue to see. Uh, you know, quite a bit of pressure in the labor market and, and some further upward pressure in uh, in wages. Ultimately, it comes down to the next number we're watching early in December, of course, is the interest rate hike. And we know we've seen a massive increase in that over the course of the year. What does this mean for what the Bank of Canada might do in early December? Well, I think it does raise the uh, the, the chances that the, the, the bank will 
hike rates by less than what they have been hiking. They already took a little bit of a step back in their latest uh, move. You know, whereas the U.S. central bank has continued to rise or hike rates uh, by 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent uh, each meeting, the Bank of Canada actually took a little bit of a step back, on, quote, only hike by half a percent in their latest meeting. I, I, the, the market is now starting to lean to the view that they might only go by a quarter Oh, okay. Of a point in in December, we we still think it's it's a debate between uh, between a quarter and a half. Our our official call is actually for a half a point increase, but I I can see the argument for for just a quarter. And and some some have argued that's it. You know that's all the bank account is going to do. Our our view is they they still need to do a little bit more than that. Um, so for instance, the the Bank of Canada's main interest rate right now is three and three quarter percent. We think ultimately they're going to take that to four and a half percent. So three quarters of a percent higher than where we are today. When you say that's it, do you mean that's it just a quarter of a point this month and then we're done? Or do you mean there could be more in the future too early to tell? I mean, are we getting towards the end of this? So we, I, th- I think most forecasters do believe we're, we're getting close to the end of it. Okay. Um, our, our official view is that, that they'll eventually take it up to, to four and a half. So that would be three quarters of a percent. So this, this will not be the final hike, but there are, there are some voices out there who are, are saying, you know, that, that, that will be it, that, uh, that, that the bank will be, uh, finished hiking interest rates in December. I, I, I personally don't believe that. I think it's, it's too early. We haven't seen enough from permanent inflation just yet. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Doug, thank you so much. Uh, Great insight. I really appreciate you being with us today. But right now we've got a conversation scheduled that is, well, it's troubling, but not surprising, I think. Um, The Auditor General has just put out a report on Canada's security capabilities when it comes to the Arctic. And it is bleak. To say the least, uh, it's pretty hard to find any positives in this report, in fact, and uh, it, it's only going to get worse. I think that's part of the concern around this. Um, Canada's capabilities in the far north are fading, just as activity in that region uh, continues to grow. So we need more, we have less, and we're losing what we have. So it is not a good situation. So let's go through this a little bit. We're going to chat now with Rob Hubert, who's a political science professor at the University of Calgary. Rob, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. It's always my pleasure. Now, the headline in this report uh, is a little alarming, basically saying that Canada doesn't even have the capacity right now to monitor who is in Canadian waters, let alone what they're doing, foreign, domestic, doesn't matter. We don't even have a way of monitoring what's going on in the Arctic. Well, absolutely. I mean, to to be fair to the government, we have a limited monitoring, but as the Auditor General did such an outstanding job of just demonstrating the fact that we... If we're having difficulty right now, the the evidence all points to the fact we're going to have a much busier yeah. Arctic coming very soon, and so that's where the real I think the real problems are that uh, that have been um, elicited within this report. Yeah, you're so right. We're talking about saying okay, our, 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 we have limited capabilities as it stands, but we're seeing an increase in traffic in the north, and it's only going to continue as you know it, it, it's ice free a lot more than it used to be. It's using being used for all all kinds of purposes, we're just going to see more and more activity in the Arctic. Yeah, and, and, and that's what the Auditor General, you know, needs to be given full credit to, uh, for, is um, it gets us away from, what we get from government is always, don't worry, be happy, we've got this under control, and I think that the Auditor General's uh, report did an outstanding job of putting all the documents together in terms of all the promises, and then looking at what actually has been delivered in the last uh, 10 or so years. 
and and, and very little. And, and and I think how how big of a deal is it when we're talking about the c- capability that we do have is eroding quickly, just over time. We don't we don't support our forces. So so it's not even a matter of expanding or or getting a more robust surveillance system in the north. It's just maintaining what we have. We're not even doing that, right? No, absolutely. And also recognize, too, the Auditor General had clear parameters in which they were able to look. So some of the issues, such as the replacement of the um, uh, fighter uh, replacements for the F-18s, and the whole issue of where we go, whether or not our surface combatants have any type of uh, ice capability or submarines, that that was not within the parameters or the privy of the report. And so there, it's even probably worse when we look at the complete picture in terms of what we can uh, expect to see in the future. So in the report that came out this week talking about, I mean, a lot of people say this is national security, but it's not just nas- national security. Uh, the, the report mentions all the other reasons we should be aware of what's happening, and there are many. I mean, it's a busy place right now. Well, it talks about national sovereignty, the ability to actually enforce our rules. If you don't have the equipment to stop those who you don't want in the region, let alone know them, um, you're not going to be able to maintain sovereignty. It talks about being able to respond to emergencies, uh, environmental crises, all the stuff in which you need to have uh, icebreakers and, and, and the other type of facilities that uh, they highlight. So what position are we in according to the report? I mean, we, we don't have the capacity. To, so basically, are we relying on, on friendly neighbors to help us out? Well, we are for the hardcore security side, but once again, that's beyond the, the bellowick of, of the report. They're not talking about yeah. the underwater surveillance capability that we rely on. The Americans and, and the British have recently offered uh, help on that regards. At this point in time, of course, the report points out that we are within the overall Arctic. The Canadian Arctic still remains the hardest for anyone to get to. It's easier. More melt has occurred on the Russian side and even on the American side along Alaska. But it's the issue that trying to rely on an ice-breaking fleet that, well, they, as the report points out, the, the medium icebreakers, 1978 to 1982 is when they were built. The large icebreakers built in 69. And the report does highlight the fact that the government is making promises in terms of where it's going, but also raises the issue that our record is abysmal in following through, and I think very rightly points out questions about whether or not we are in fact going to see the new big icebreakers that have been promised. Uh, um, and they also highlight one thing that I think all Canadians need to really pay attention to is that we don't seem to have a replacement plan, according to the Auditor General, for our satellite system, the radar sat constellation. And they point out that that is probably going to come to its end of its service life at the end of this decade. And these things take a long time. Anyone who thinks that you can just sort of slap it together quickly, look how, you know, look at anyone else's space program. These are difficult, challenging elements. And if you don't have it prepared ahead of time, got a real problem coming. And, and satellite, I mean, even to put it into greater context, back in June, our defense minister said we we're going to be updating um, NORAD satellite capabilities. Uh, but here we have the Auditor General's report saying, well, we're not even thinking seriously about how to, to, to keep our existing systems up and running. And so I think when you start putting all that together, it paints a pretty troubling picture. It does. You're absolutely right. And, and a familiar one, too. One that we've heard in a number of other areas when it comes to defense. Um, but the, the, I wonder about the emphasis and the focus that's been put on the Arctic recently. Of course, it was just this summer 
where the NATO Secretary General was in Canada visiting the North. We were talking about the Arctic. We were talking about security and sovereignty. So, like you say, the pro- the government is talking about it, but have we seen any follow-through so far? Well, the metaphor that I think stands out the best is we made a decision to replace our big icebreaker back on September 10th, 1985, and we still don't have a replacement. And I think that kind of highlights and and just sort of backs up what the uh, Auditor General's report uh, says. We always have plans. I mean, the the current government has plans to build one in in Quebec and one in in, uh, Vancouver, but once again, you know, as they say, good intentions and a, and, and a dollar, you know, are worth a dollar. So um, it's 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 really problematic. Part of the problem, of course, is that the Arctic is so far away. There are other pressing issues, and and of course, even within the Arctic. You know, we have a whole host of horrific human security issues in terms of TB, uh, very extreme issues in terms of suicide rates. And so, you know, there are all sorts of challenges that have to be met, but it still illustrates the fact that the government compared to many of the other governments, and the report is very good at highlighting what other countries are doing in terms of points of comparisons and ice-breaking capabilities and so forth, um, demonstrates, in fact, that we just don't seem to have the political will within yeah. Canada. And haven't for a very, very long time. You can go back through a number of administrations. Do you think that's changing? That's the question I always wonder about this, because I think there's new emphasis not only on the Arctic, but what's going on with our NATO obligations and our own security with the change in posture that the United States has taken. Do you think that changes as a does as as a, an electorate as the people of Canada because I think you know the politicians will only respond if we make it a priority do you think that's changing well unfortunately it's I don't see evidence um, I see the evidence points to the fact we respond to crises so when the Americans sent an oil tanker through the Northwest Passage without asking permission in 69 we did do serious reaction to that. When a similar event occurred with an American icebreaker in 1985, we took actions. But we seem to only be capable of doing this stuff when we see a crisis. Yeah. In other words, we can't be proactive. Now, we already see a lot of senior Amer- uh, Canadian officials already trying to sort of downplay the changing geopolitics that are occurring in the Arctic. Some aren't. Some, to their credit, uh, such as General Ayers, when he was testifying before the uh, Standing Committee on Defense, did say that there is a threat. Um, I, you know, you can disagree with the timeline, but at least he's using terminology of threat. But it, I don't know. It, we don't seem to be able to say, okay, we can see this coming. The, you know, the, the the factors and issues. We've got an aggressor, Russia. We have a China. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, the the evidence of just what we can expect of uh, in the future, China. I think kind of got con, uh, you know encapsulated with their very deliberate rebunking of uh, Trudeau. I mean, that was so deliberate. Obviously, wait till cameras are around and make that make your right, point. Yeah. So, I mean, these are the futures we have, and we know that from just from a geopolitical perspective, the the Arctic is one of the heavily militarized regions when it comes to nuclear weapons. And, you know, we always forget that and say, oh, well, that's just a legacy of the Cold War. Well, it's not, because the Russians have invested heavily in modernizing their nuclear capabilities that are based in that region. The Americans, since about 218, 217, have been investing very heavily to counter, and so have the Nordic countries. And I think for Canada, the, the, the threat and problem are so overwhelming. 
we still want to pretend that the distance is protecting us, that the ice and distance will keep us safe as it has to a limited degree in the past. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, the Americas will take care of it. That seems right. to be our fallback. Always complacency. I think you're right. We t- we uh, have taken for granted the position that we have largely being uh, the closest neighbor to the United States. And I, I think it's starting to change, but uh, I don't know if there's enough political will there to, to move with it. Well, we're seeing clearly the Americans, even Biden, who obviously is more sympathetic to Canada than Trump was, even Biden has been signaling to us on issues such as the our Asia Pacific or lack of Asia Pacific uh, policies and actions elsewhere, where we run the danger of the United States with the new political yeah. environment it finds itself that Canada is no longer that special relationship. We're just another foreign country, and when that happens. Uh, that is going to be very challenging, I think, for Canadian policymakers. Yeah, and the U.S. has said very clearly it's, it's America first. That went through Trump and it went through Biden, both of them saying, you know what, we're going to focus. We're not interested in being the, the world's policeman anymore. That's We're going to be more focused on taking care of ourselves. And, uh, you know, the, the world changes when the United States says something like that, especially for us. Yeah, well, I think they are, both of them are signaling, they will remain the uh, the uh, world's policemen, but they want us to pay our share. In other words, the issue of Canada being able to get away on a lot of these things on the cheap, um, I think that that becomes really problematic. We've seen that in terms of our NATO spending, in terms of what Trump was doing, and I suspect that the um, uh, when we had the announcement back in June about modernization of NORAD, that was a response to probably a little bit more quieter but still persistent Biden um, recognition that we need to do more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rob, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.